Thank you. Good morning. So in our reading today, Paul reports that he is encouraged about the faith of the Thessalonians. And the bearer of that news was Timothy. So today, as Lisa said, we're uh, beginning a series that will take us to the end of the year, looking at the pastoral epistles, in particular those uh, those to Timothy, so 1 and 2 Timothy. And I've called this series Letters to a, open brackets, 20, close brackets, first century church, because the letters were addressed to the first century church, but I think there are similarities to the challenges that we face today in the 21st century. So my aim today is to provide some background and to set some general questions of inquiry as we progress through this series. And the first of those questions would be this. Would Paul write to us that he was encouraged by our faith? I'll come back to that at the end. So these pastoral epistles were written to the pastors rather than the churches, and they are designed to encourage and to mentor the pastors in two churches, that is Timothy in Ephesus and Titus in Crete. 1 Timothy and Titus were written around the same time, and 2 Timothy some years later, when Paul was most likely in his final months. Now, there's some debate about whether Paul actually wrote these letters, or if they were written by somebody else a bit later using Paul's name. I won't exercise that theological conundrum today. Some of my colleagues through the year may decide to dip in there, I don't know, Um, But merely to say that I will assume that they were either written by Paul or heavily influenced by him, and they reflect his thought. The principles contained within the letters are correctly included in the canon of Scripture, and therefore they're applicable to the church of the time, and we can see how that applies to the church today. So what I'd like to do is to set the scene by doing an overview of Paul's ministry, an introduction to who Timothy was, a brief introduction to Ephesus and the Ephesian church, and then look at some challenges for us to continue to consider over this year as we work our way through the letters. So firstly, Paul's ministry. Saul was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, a Jew, and a Roman citizen. He learned at the feet of the rabbi Gamaliel and exercised a zealous desire to stamp out the new blasphemous sect known as the Way. He was present at the stoning of Stephen, which began the diaspora of uh, the Jews from Jerusalem, and he approved. En route to Damascus, on one of these sorties to seek out more followers of Jesus, to lock them up or worse... He was met by the risen Jesus. He heard his voice that asked why Saul was persecuting him. Saul, blinded, cried out to him as Lord. He was taken to Damascus and he took three days to recover. He was attended by a man named Ananias. And after those three days, he not only received his sight, but he received a new life. He immediately went out into the streets 
and completely transformed went out to preach that Jesus is Lord and the Messiah and that he died for our sins. I wonder, Peter, if we could have the first couple of slides, those maps, if that's okay. So after years of preparation with the disciples and through his own prayer and study, Saul ends up in Antioch with Barnabas, who together are commissioned and sent from Cyprus on a mission to the Gentiles. They travelled through cities in what is now southern Turkey. Now this is the second journey. The first one was much shorter. They often caused trouble and they often were asked to leave or they had to leave for their own safety. But along the way, they made converts. They returned to Jerusalem for the council there that was to settle the issue of whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised. So after a time after that in Antioch, the two men planned a second journey but they had a dispute about whether to take John Mark, who had deserted them in Pamphylia on their first journey. They parted, Barnabas going with John Mark and Paul with Silas. And they largely went back to the churches they'd been and then carried on on a much longer journey. And it is on this second journey that they met Timothy at Lystra, his hometown. Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Greek, in other words, Gentile father. Others in the town spoke well of him, and Paul was so impressed that he wanted to take him on his journey. Paul circumcised Timothy, despite the findings of the Jerusalem Council. Timothy was by now a young adult, And he did this so that he would be acceptable to both Gentiles and Jews, since Jewish believers may not have accepted him because of his Greek father. Paul wanted Timothy's ministry to be as fruitful and as broad as possible. The message that had been sent from the Jerusalem was simply that, uh, in the spirit of the decision, they didn't want to make it difficult for Gentiles to turn to God. They wanted as many people to come to the way as possible. And that the only requirements that were placed on Gentiles were to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, uh, to abstain from uh, the blood of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Those are the only three things that were specified. They wanted as many to come to faith as possible. They didn't want them to be burdened beyond these things. Paul's second journey, as I said, is much longer and more extensive. You can see it on the map there. And it took in modern-day Turkey and Greece. and includes places like Galatia, Corinth, Ephesus, and, of course, Athens as well. You may recognize those as names of some of the letters that Paul would later write. Now, at Ephesus, he left Priscilla and Aquila, who established the church there. And before Paul would return... Apollos joined them. He was keen, but he needed instruction, and he was instructed by Priscilla and Aquila, and he was then sent to Corinth. You may recognize that name, Apollos, from the first letter to the Corinthians. Ephesus was therefore, the Ephesian church anyway, was now sending out its own apostles. Paul's third journey 
followed a similar pattern to the second. And in that journey, he picked up Luke, who would, of course, not only write the Gospel of Luke, but also the book of Acts. And during this time, his preaching caused disruption and riots while he was in Ephesus. There were people in Ephesus who uh, made idols, metal workers who made idols, and they were losing their income because of the teaching of Paul, and they didn't like it. Now, on the return journey, Paul met the Ephesian leaders at Miletus. He didn't go back to Ephesus. He said his farewells. He bypassed Ephesus, um, and he told the elders to be on their guard because savage wolves will come to the flock and that people will try to distort the truth. All of this is important background for what we'll find in the letters to Timothy. But it's certainly true that Paul trusted the Ephesian leadership enough not to have to go back there. Paul's final journey from Jerusalem was planned to be to Spain, but being arrested, the story ends with a series of trials and Paul ending up on house arrest in Rome, from where he wrote a number of letters and where he subsequently is thought to have been executed, although that's not actually recorded in Acts. So who was Timothy? Timothy, in some ways, replaced John Mark and met Paul when he had suffered both a disappointment in the unreliability of one of his companions, in other words, John Mark, but more painfully, a falling out with his really good friend, Barnabas, the encourager. Paul found in Timothy an eager evangelist and a leader who was very young. And Paul becomes a kind of spiritual father to Timothy. And and Timothy is something of a protege. And we find that Timothy does not complete the long journeys with Paul. Instead, he was sent to churches by him as a kind of ambassador. So in our reading today, it is Timothy who brings the news from Thessalonica back to Paul about the faith of that church. Paul describes Timothy as a co-worker, not as a subordinate. And he often addresses letters to churches from Paul and Timothy. If you look at some of the letters to the churches, it will say uh, uh, greetings from Paul, Timothy, and possibly a couple of other people. To the Corinthians, uh, to whom Timothy was sent, Paul asks that Timothy should have nothing to fear from them. And a little later, to the Philippians, he said of Timothy that he had proved himself as a son with his father. Timothy appears more than any other in these letters as a co-worker with Paul. And although it's not mentioned when he settled in Ephesus, it's likely that he was posted there after a decade of apprenticeship to Paul himself. So I wonder if we could have the next slide. So we'll turn, having looked at Paul and looked at Timothy, to the place of Ephesus in which he was placed. Now, I did have the joy of going to Ephesus a few years ago, so these are my own photos. Um, Ephesus was a major port. It was very wealthy, It was Roman and Greek to its core, and uh, we'll see a little bit about it in a moment. So the first couple of photos are of the 24,000-seater amphitheatre. So that's a huge space. Very hot as well, I seem to remember. 
um, and that's quite near the bottom of the, of the, the city. The next slide. The, there's a main street you can see in that middle photo there, and at the bottom is this huge artifice, which is um, the temple, it's what's left of the temple to um, uh, Artemis or Diana, who is the goddess of love. And you can see the, the main street is, is dominated by this huge building. Now, partway up, if we go move on to the next slide, uh, the picture on the left, I believe, um, that uh, partway up that main street, you have on one side a library and on the other side a fairly extensive brothel. And there was a secret passageway between the two. And I remember joking with my friend I was with that you could just imagine the Romans going out saying, all right, love, just go to the library. <laughs> but it gives a sense of the uh, morals, if you like, of the city. Um, on the right-hand side is the, uh, the place in which the riot started. It was quite wonderful standing there and watching... <laughs> just imagining what it would be like, all these people getting very cross with Paul. Uh, we have the next slide. And these are just outside the main city. Uh, you can see the cross of St. John on the right-hand side. Um, and uh, the picture on the left is a baptistry. You can just see circled the little steps down um, into, into the baptistry. It's thought that John, who wrote John's letters, John's gospel, and of course Revelation, which he wrote somewhere else, um, lived in Ephesus. And you may remember from the end of John's gospel that uh, John was the uh, disciple that Jesus loved who looked after Mary, his mother. So it's also thought that Mary settled in and died and is buried um, at Ephesus. So there's a mix of the Roman culture and this growing kind of Christian church all growing in the same place. So Ephesus was dominated by license, anything goes, pantheism, cosmopolitan belief with all these traders coming and going, and behavior, commerce, wealth, greed. The Ephesian church was planted, as I said, by Paul and established uh, by these trusted missionaries, Priscilla and Aquila. And it was fruitful enough to send Apollos to Corinth. And now it was entrusted to the leadership of this seasoned, by now seasoned, co-worker, Timothy, who is a spiritual son to Paul. And were trusted enough to get on with it, but to receive the warnings of what might come. So what are... We can drop the slide now. Thank you, Peter. Um, so what are the main themes of the letter? Well, some of the commentaries might say this. Opposition, heresy, and false teaching. The development of church order and leadership and what those leadership roles might look like. And what it is to live a Christian life and pastoral care. Some of the key words that we'll find come up as we go are salvation, godliness, trustworthy sayings, and sound doctrine. So what might that say to us today? Well, we live in a culture that is very like that in Ephesus in the first century. Many different beliefs, 
permissiveness. Money talks. Inequality. Arguments in the church about what we should believe. Teaching that challenges orthodoxy. Questions of how we should care for one another. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? How can we support our leaders and what do we expect of them? And what is an authentic Christian faith in this context? Now, some of you may be pleased that I've now finished the book, The Resilient Pastor, because I keep quoting from it, but it was brilliant. And I have now finished it, but right in the very last chapter, Glenn Packiam says this, quoting from Ben Sixsmith in, a, in an American context, uh, writing from an essay critiquing a range of modern Christian doctrine. From the right-wing prosperity capitalist self-enrichment with a twist of Christianity to something like Nadia Boltz Weber, progressive left-wing causes with a twist of Christianity. And ask the question, if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? He quotes Sixsmith with these words. If someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. And what this means is making Jesus, who is the exciting countercultural son of God, just like everyone else. And I don't think he would approve. So here are five challenges for us to hear today and to carry through these coming weeks. And we'll see these come up in the letters. Is there a danger today of tolerating a wide variety of beliefs and patterns of behaviour? It's the first one. The second one is, is does every member ministry undermine or complement Paul's high view of leadership? And how can the church best support its leaders? I don't just mean here in Christchurch, but nationally and across the denominations as well. Thirdly, what might a contemporary theology of money and generosity look like? And fourthly, the pastoral epistles teach about character, reflecting ancient ideals such as self-control, godliness and submission. How relevant are those today? And what should a 21st century gospel living out look like? But finally, and if you remember nothing else from this morning, take this away, I return to my original question. What might Paul say to us in a letter today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these letters. We thank you for the time that we will be able to spend with these letters. Show us how the situation in first century Ephesus and the Roman world applies to us today in living out our faith. Lord, challenge us and encourage us.
And if change is needed, Lord, change us so that we can be gospel carriers, gospel livers, and gospel sharers here and out there for the glory of your name. Amen.